Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 58. Byzantium is back and so is Barbarossa. Last time, we left Pope Hadrian IV, the English Pope, away from his capital, Rome, where the Senate that ruled over the independent commune of the city refused to recognize his authority. What's more, the recent fighting between the Romans and Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who had escorted the Pope back into the city, had left all sides rather unhappy with each other. Frederick, with his demoralized and fever-ridden troops, was heading back to Germany, leaving Hadrian high and dry. It was at this point that Hadrian looked south, where things were getting potentially interesting. What made things interesting was the fact that the new Norman king of Sicily and southern Italy William I, son of Roger II, was in pretty big trouble. He was facing the rebellion of his vassal lords in Puglia, and, as if that wasn't enough, he was staring down a full-blown Byzantine invasion. You see, the Eastern Roman emperor at the time, Manuel Comnenus, was overseeing a new era of Byzantine glory, and, Once he had seen that in Corfu he could beat the Normans, he dreamed of bringing Italy, or at least part of it, back into the empire. In 1155 he sent two generals, Michael Palaiologos and John Docas Kamateros, to invade Apulia with troops, ten ships and heaps of gold. Thanks to a mix of that gold and force when necessary, as well as the whole of southern Italy rising in rebellion against the Normans, the Byzantine expedition made very rapid progress as stronghold after stronghold fell. Bari, the ancient capital of the Byzantine Cataponate, opened its gates to Emperor Manuel's army and the rejoicing citizens tore down the Norman citadel. The cities of Trani, Andria, Taranto and Brindisi soon followed. William I tried to save his crumbling kingdom with an army that included around 2,000 knights, but he was sorely defeated. It was at this point when things looked like they couldn't go any better for the invading Byzantines and the rebel vassals, that Pope Hadrian IV decided to throw in his lot with the Eastern Roman army. After all, the Normans had always been pesky neighbours, and perhaps the more civilised Byzantines would have made better ones, especially when their seat of power was so far away, which would mean that the Pope was perhaps a bit more free to act as he wished. Plus, this could even represent an opportunity to reunite the Eastern and Western churches, which had now been in a state of schism for over a century. 
an agreement was reached in which the Pope was promised loads of cash, and he gathered up his own papal forces, some barons from the Lazio region, and headed down to help out. Obviously, it was at this point that things started to go badly for the new coalition. One of the two Byzantine generals, Michael Palaiologos, managed to alienate many allies, stalling the campaign. He was then recalled to Constantinople, which was actually a real blow for the war effort. Then came the turning point, the battle for Brindisi. The Normans had finally got their act together and launched a combined land and sea offensive. Seeing the enemy on their way, the mercenaries in Emperor Manuel's army demanded an increase in pay and deserted when they were refused it. Seeing how quickly the tide was turning, many local nobles also started to drift away, and the remaining Byzantine general, John Ducas, was left outnumbered. In effect, it was the end of the campaign in Italy. William managed to quickly take back all of the lost cities, and Manuel's attempt to raise another army starting from Ancona was to no avail. Now, for William and his rebellious vassals, it was reckoning time. There was no mercy to be had. The death sentences were issued by the hundreds, the most common method of execution being that of throwing the condemned into the sea with rocks tied to their legs. Many were not killed but blinded. Among these was the Prince of Capua, who was taken captive to Palermo and blinded there. The destruction and killing that followed the rebellion earned William the nickname of Il Malo, the Bad. Although he had secured his dominion for the time being, he had definitively eliminated any possibility of lasting peace between the Italian mainland and the Hauteville dynasty. One good move that William did make was in dealing with the Pope, and in this case he was a lot more lenient. The two sides met in Benevento, and among the papal delegation was the papal chancellor Rolando Bandinelli, the future Pope Alexander III, who will soon have a very important role to play on a different front. William I Hauteville finally received the recognition that his reign desperately needed. As well as Sicily, Puglia, Calabria, his authority was also recognized over Salerno, Amalfi, parts of Abruzzo and the Marche, and most importantly of all, Naples. The important element in the duration of the peace that was made was that the agreement wasn't being reached with a pope imprisoned and under pressure, but in a free negotiation. The Pope in turn received the loyalty of William as a vassal and a hefty tribute, which is always welcome. This agreement also gave the Pope something he had been lacking since the start of the Norman conquest, i.e. spiritual authority over southern Italy, whose religious representatives until that moment had been chosen by the Sicilian crown. 
The agreement was signed on the 18th of June, 1156. Another positive consequence for the Pope was that he was finally able to get into Rome and reach a lasting agreement with the Senate. The Senate recognized him and vice versa, so they were able to go back to an unsteady peace. What convinced them was the presence of the Normans. It was one thing to deal with those pale and sickly-looking Germans who had to travel all the way down the peninsula to get there. It was a whole other kettle of fish to deal with the tough Normans who by now had become locals and were sitting on their doorstep, grinding their teeth and sharpening their swords. So, with the Pope's new alliance, the Senate became a lot more docile. For the moment, the Pope and the Norman king were sorted. They were buddies again. An uneasy peace had fallen over central and southern Italy. By the year 1158, the last of the Byzantine presence had left Italy for good. However, if 1158 saw one emperor leave the Italian scene, the same year saw another emperor come back on the scene. Because Frederick Barbarossa was ready to descend down into Italy once again. The first time around, Barbarossa had thought that he had taught the rebellious communes a lesson, and in particular Milan. Evidently, that had not been enough. Milan had continued to oppress Lodi, the smaller market town to the south east. They had even gone so far as to issue an edict banning the Lodigiani, the inhabitants of Lodi, from selling goods without the consent of Milan, or they would be banished and their goods confiscated. This was obviously a heavy burden on a town that made its fortune as an important market centre. When Milan then demanded the official submission of Lodi, the smaller town refused. After launching an ultimatum which was ignored, the Milanese entered Lodi, forced out the inhabitants, and totally destroyed the city, demolishing the walls and burning all of the houses within them, and emptying the churches of all they contained. Basically, they had taken the town of Lodi away from under its inhabitants. The refugees fled to Pizzighettone. Further south east, and there they sent for help to the Holy Roman Emperor. That was how it came to be that in 1158, Barbarossa descended upon the Po Valley with a substantial army of Germans, Austrians, Poles, Bohemians, and Burgundians. They fell upon the valley like a natural disaster of epic proportions. Dozens of villages were burned, many inhabitants killed, and cattle and harvest destroyed. Then Frederick crossed the Adda River northeast of Milan, overcoming the Milanese defenses and taking the strategic castle of Trezzo. He then headed towards the city to the plain of Lambro, where he met the Lodigiani. He assigned them. 
new lands to rebuild their city and personally marked out the area where the imperial palace was to be built. Milan was now isolated and under siege. For a month, they attempted sorties out of the walls to try and break the siege, but to no avail, and in the end, they were forced to surrender. Some chroniclers point to a betrayal on the part of the captain of the Milanese militia, Guido da Biandrate, who owed his wealth and fortune to the imperial family. He knew Frederick well since they had been on the Second Crusade together and Guido had played host to Barbarossa in 1154 during his first descent into Italy. It would be Guido, ten years later, who would save the emperor's life in his darkest hour. The first to enter the city were the displaced Lodigiani and the citizens of the pro-imperial Pavia. Frederick had trouble containing the furor of their vengeful violence. In the end, the Milanese submitted and paid tribute to the emperor. The city's ally to Milan soon followed suit, sending representatives to the emperor. Frederick wanted to make sure everyone got the picture, so he convened a great diet in Roncaglia, the second after the first in 1154, in which he set out how things were going to be going down from then on. Those present were bishops, nobles, consuls, but also law experts from the University of Bologna. The Diet recognised Frederick's sovereignty over marches, duchies and counties, and the right to build houses, bridges and roads. He was the supreme magistrate, which gave him the right to apply sanctions, annul sentences and give pardons. Only he could mint coins, raise walls and place taxes on salt, iron and all products from the earth and from below the earth. All of these had been rights that Milan and its allies had claimed for themselves and readily exercised. Aside from the communes, the church also came out a bit worse for wear from the Diet of Roncaglia, due to the fact that it had to respect a whole series of feudal obligations as a temporal ruler of the Papal States. This, in particular, along with the growing grudge that Milan held, would cause trouble for Frederick not far along the line. Despite the hushed grumbling and tummy aches, the resolutions of the Diet were voted unanimously. I mean, you don't really have much of a choice when voting when an angry emperor is staring at you and his troops are all around the city. The decision may have been voted unanimously at the Diet, but when it came to the application, as we'll see next time, the communes were not going to take it lying down. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi First Level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy, the Matilde Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini Level, Benjamin, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei Level, Anthony, Ben, Celine, Chris, Dean, 
Ignacio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent, and the top level, Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri level, Sen, Paolo, and Reactionary, Venetian. I would also really like to thank Leslie Jazz for a lovely new review on iTunes. Thank you very much, Leslie, for your kind words. And also a shout-out to Marino, who got in touch with a question about his family's native Abruzzo. We mentioned in this episode that Abruzzo, at least part of Abruzzo, has just become part of the Kingdom of Sicily. It is a region which I and my family really love, and I really recommend a holiday there. I'd also like to remind everyone in closing about the trip to Ravenna coming up on the 24th of August. And if you want any info on that and you happen to be in the area of uh, northern Italy in late August and would like to pop in for a visit, then you can look up the Facebook page of Storia d'Italia. That is S-T-O-R-I-A space D apostrophe Italia. And there you'll find all the info and you can sign up for that. As always, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to social media, Twitter or Facebook, and look at timelines, maps, and other sources to help you navigate our country's complicated history. Thanks again very much to everyone for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Okay, everybody now, settle down. So, here are the final decisions of the diet. So, we've all decided that I am great, I'm the ruler of the universe, and I can do what I want, okay? Everybody with that? Um, well, sir... Yeah, yes, you, legal Bologna expert dude, what? Well, does it have to be the universe? Maybe, sir, I would, uh go with the world, you know, there's uh, that whole thing about God and everything. Ah, yes, you're right. I, I don't want to exaggerate, yes. Okay, so, I am the whole of the world, I'm really great, and I can do what I want. Okay? Everybody with that? Um, excuse me, sir, well, I mean... Yes, yes, what, what? Yes, you over there, the commune guy. Well, I mean... Oh! Oh. oh dear, he seems to have accidentally stabbed himself while asking a question. How clumsy of him. Okay, so, everybody else agree? Ah, that's great. Yes, everybody raise your hand. Yes, every, you too, Bishop Gaia. Okay, great. Okay, great. Okay, see you around then. Thank you very much. Bye.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.